Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jim Breckbuehler. I'm the discipleship minister here, and I just want to welcome everybody. And um, if you want to turn in your Bibles right now to 1 Peter 1.13, uh, we'll get started here shortly. Um, I wanted to bring up the fact that our church is getting fit this summer, and for those of you who are, are visiting, we're not like getting into beach bum buffed type of stage. We're talking about being spiritually fit, and the fit stands for, um, first of all, the F stands for filling up yourself with God's Word. And we have a reading plan that you can access by the, by the website. You can go to the Get Fit uh, tab, and it'll be there. The I stands for Invest in Ministry. And as Cindy mentioned earlier, there's things you can do in VBS. There's things all, all summer long in children's ministry, and even as the coming school year starts, uh, you can talk to Dave about how to be involved in local ministry here as well as worldwide. There's just so many ways that we can be a part of investing in the ministry to take the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world and out into our community and also to build our own people up. And then the last one, the T stands for telling somebody about Jesus this year. Talk about it. And um, I would just encourage everybody to have a goal that I'm going to have a spiritual conversation about Jesus with somebody by the summer's end. So um, the, what we're going to do this morning is before we get into uh, the passage that we're going to be studying, we need to jump back to Steve's sermon and remember two words in particular that he used over and over again last week, and one of those was hope, and the other one was praise. Hope and praise. And in order to understand where we're at today, we have to have a really good understanding of hope. And so we're first going to start in First, first Peter uh, 1 and verses 3, just to review super fast and bridge to what I'm going to talk about. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. When we become Christians, we have a new life. And this new life is into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And so when we die, we are going to receive our inheritance. Someday we will be on the new earth when he comes again. We'll be in heaven where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. That inheritance will be laid up, to it, laid up there in heaven for us, but it also says that those of us who are in faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are protected, and our inheritance is protected by the power of our Heavenly Father. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Peter is writing to Christians that are scattered. And it is thought that this is both going to Jewish Christians and also to Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians would be anybody that's not Jewish, so most of us would have a Gentile background. And the Gentiles were known for carousing and drunkenness and orgies and that type of thing. We'll get to that a little bit later. But he's saying, hey, um, you will be suffering now wherever you're at, and remember the joy and the hope 
that you have. Now jumping down to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We, we sang a little bit ago about the joy that we have in our relationship with Jesus. And if you think back over this last week, would the people that you know go, wow, they are really joyous about their faith? Because that is supposed to mark us as Christians. But that last sentence is so important, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One of the important things is that we understand the contrast between what we were saved from and what we are now saved for. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10, this is just one of the many uh, passages that I could have used to show the, the contrast. This is written to people uh, specifically with Christians. Well, they were once Christians, and now they have renounced their faith and walked away. This is not about the person who's fallen and then gotten back up. They've said, nope, I'm done. I'm going back to my old way of life. We pick up in verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another along towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Just as a side note, this just drills home the importance of being in church every Sunday and to be part of a life group, to be in a discipleship group or a D group, to spur each other on, to encourage each other to go the distance, not lose sight of the hope that we have. And then we get to this verse 26, and these are very telling words. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Let that sink in again. The person who doesn't know Christ or who has walked away from him once they have tasted it, what they have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, and they are in an enemy position, an enemy position of God. You see, we don't like to think about hell. It's horrible. Theologian R.C. Sproul said the thing that he struggled with the most with his Christian faith was the concept of hell but it's biblical. It's not up to us to change it. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Hell is described as a place where there'll be gnashing of teeth, there'll be weeping, it's loneliness, it's darkness, it's heat. And see, for us to understand the hope that we have, we have to understand and really grasp what we were saved from. So we were saved from hell, the real hell, what it's portrayed in the Bible to truly be. We were saved from that for an inheritance that's laid up in heaven to be with God for eternity to be in heaven where there'll be no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, 
We have to understand the contrast because if we don't understand that contrast, then today's message will not carry as much because it turns on the word, therefore. Now, a special note, if you have not taken the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, don't put it off. This is real. You may come in here week after week after week, and you just like, I'll put it off. Don't. You're not guaranteed to make it through this service. But there's a special danger for the cradle Christian also, or for the longtime Christian. You've been a Christian for so long, or you've never really known any difference. You, you grew up in the church, and then about 10 or 11 or wherever, you gave your life to the Lord. And it's so easy to fall into a pattern of forgetting what you were saved for that you don't appreciate as much what you were saved and what you have waiting. And so for those of us who were cradle Christians or Christians for a long time, we have got to grasp this. For the child, for, for the person who ate lunch at noon and who had a snack at three and then they're famished at six o'clock for supper, they're not going to appreciate their food as much as the Haitian child who hasn't eaten since the night before and maybe had a very small meal then. And unless if we grasp what we were saved from and what we have waiting for us at the end, we won't appreciate the hope as much. Now, here's the key. We get to verse 13 today, and it turns on that hope. It's basically, okay, therefore, because of this hope, I exhort you to these things. Peter gives us what's called exhortations here. An exhortation is a communication of something for someone to do, and they're delivered in an emphatic urging. So Peter is saying to all of us, I'm emphatically urging you to do something with what I'm telling you. It's very important. So let's take a look at what it says. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, again, we're turning now based on the hope that you have. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We need to keep our minds free of so much stuff. We can become so burdened down with all the fun stuff, bad stuff, whatever it is, that we lose sight of the hope. In some of the older translations, it says, have a mind prepared for action. And even in the older, even older translations, it says, gird up your loins. And that doesn't mean anything to us. But back in the day, they would wear cloaks that were down to their knees, below their knees or down to their ankles. And when they needed to work or when they needed to run or to fight, they would pull up their cloaks and tuck them in their belt so that they were prepared for action. And what this is basically saying is prepare your minds for action. Another way that we might more understand it today is roll up your sleeves, roll up the minds of your sleeves, if you want to call it that, and be prepared for action. Christianity is an action faith. It is an action, it's a faith of, of compassion for those that are less fortunate, for those that are the underdog. It is, the, it is a, a faith, uh, an action faith that's about forgiveness and about kindness. 
And it's never just coming in here for one hour on a Sunday morning. And so now we keep our minds free, and we focus on the hope, and then we get to verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. We're called as obedient children to not conform to the ways we had before we came to Christ. Again, the pagan Christians, the Gentiles, would have understood this. They're famous. You can read through the New Testament. They were known for their carousing, for their lust, for their drunkenness, for orgies. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Now he's saying, be holy because I am holy. And when he says, be holy, he's saying, what, he, what he's saying is, be separate from sin. When we sin, there should be a remorse there. We don't live in guilt, but when we sin, there should be a remorse. There should be a repentance. We confess those sins to the Lord. We don't just go on and keep doing it over and over again. We are to be separate from sin, and it also means that we are set apart specifically for our Heavenly Father. Now, here's an important thing. He uses the term as obedient children. Each of us in here had a mom and a dad, and they contributed half and half, I guess, I don't know exactly, the genetic DNA of us. So we might have our dad's nose, our mom's hair, whatever their height, weight, that type of thing, but they both contributed to us. But when we talk about being the obedient children of our Heavenly Father, He is the only one that is contributing to us our spiritual genetic DNA. And we are called to look like Him. We can't do all the things that God does. We can't be omnipotent, be all-powerful. We can't be omniscient, all-knowing. We can't be omnipresent. We can't be everywhere, but we can, in the best attempt that we have, to grow in the same moral fiber that our Heavenly Father has. We grasp and, and go after compassion and kindness. We remain sexually pure. You know, the Bible hasn't changed on sexual purity. The marriage bed is where sex happens, not outside of it. And the culture has taught us something different. And Christians are to stay true to that. We to avoid pornography and those type of things. These are all part of being holy, and we strive for these things. So now we get to verse 17, and he says, okay, he's going to give us five reasons five motivators to live holy lives. Now, you got to pick them out because he randomly just blows through these things, but it's so important. So let's verse, look at verse 17. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Here's the first two. Since you call on a father who is impartial, who judges each person's work, we have to remember the father that we call on when, a when our child is sick or when we're having a relationship problem at work or with a friend 
or when we are just stressed out and we call on that Father, or when we call on that Father for salvation, that same Father will be the Father that we stand before at Judgment Day. We will give an account. And if our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if we have given our life to Jesus, we'll be in heaven. But here's the thing. We don't want to be standing there and go, I never changed. I mean, not, we don't know what it's going to look like. But our account should be one where we gradually grow in our holiness. We should want that. That's, the bottom. That's what I want to say. We should want to be standing there and be able to show a body of work where we are constantly growing in our holiness. So that's, that's the first one. We'll stand in front of God at judgment. That should be a motivator. The second thing is this. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We're just passing through this world. Our life here on earth is over like that as compare, in comparison to eternity. And this reverent fear that we have should be of the creator God, the one who knit you in your mother's womb and made you perfect. And we should not get caught up in the culture. We don't base our morality on culture. We base it on this, the Word of God. If you want to know if something's right or wrong or if you need to do it or not do it, this is where you go, not Hollywood. All right. Now, we move on to verse 18. For you know that this is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Here's reason three and four. He says, I have redeemed you. You have been redeemed from an empty life. You were chasing after all these things. This is the readers of this from Peter. They've been chasing after all these things, and they came up empty. And that was passed on to them from their forefathers. We're in that exact same thing today. Things are passed on to us today. People chase after an empty lifestyle, and we come up short. And he's saying, I bought you out of that empty life. But the fourth reason that he lists here may be the most important of all of these. He says, we were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. We were bought at a high price. Jesus hung on the cross. His nails, nails were driven through his hands and his feet. Can you imagine that pain? Blood pouring down from his body. Being mocked. And God's pouring out his wrath on him for each and every one of our sins. How horrible of a punishment. And that's what we were bought with. He says you weren't bought with silver or gold. Back in those days, you could buy a slave out of slavery. Maybe your family would go get you out of slavery and pay with coinage. Maybe you were a prisoner of war, and you could be bought out of a prisoner of war situation with coinage. He said you weren't bought with that. We're bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And then the fifth reason is found in verse 21. Through him you believe in God, 
who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Through him you believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's a motivator for us. We can trust God. Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise three days later, and that's exactly what happened. So he gives us these five motivators in these five verses. We'll stand before God in judgment. Let's make sure that we keep that in mind and want to please him and do the right thing. We pass through this world so quickly. Let's do it with reverent uh, fear, and let's not get caught up in the culture what everybody else is doing. We are bought out of an empty life, one that was futile. That should motivate us to be live holy lives. We can trust God because he was true to his word. He raised his son Jesus out of the grave three days later. We can trust our lives to him. And again, the biggest motivator out of all that may simply be that we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. So because of the hope we have, we're called to be holy, and those are the things that should motivate us to do it. So now he switches gears a little bit, and part of holiness is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get to verse 22, and it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, you you could basically say, now that you are saved, now that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and growing you, you love your brothers and sisters. He doesn't say, now try to love them. He says, that's an automatic. He just says, since you're saved, you love your brothers and sisters. Again, keep in mind, we have the same 100% spiritual DNA if we're Christians. So why would we not automatically love our brothers and sisters? And then he says, though, how we do it. And he says, love your brothers and sisters deeply from the heart. Then he goes on to say, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter preached the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, and three days later, he arose from the grave. That's the good news for us. And God's word does not perish. Anything a man or woman makes will die someday. It'll go away. Every human will die and go away. But the word of God does not go away. And we have to keep this in mind. Then we go to the next Three, last three verses here, and he says, okay, now I've called you to love your brothers deeply. Now here's what you need to do. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Rid yourselves of these things. First one is malice. This is having ill will towards somebody. 
Um, maybe you don't necessarily want something to happen, but it just tires you out thinking about it, or you really wouldn't care if something bad happened to somebody. Maybe there's some Christian sisters always talking about her great job, and you're like, if she got fired, I really wouldn't care. Or maybe you have a Christian brother that when he walks up to you, he smiles, and he's got these big pearly white teeth. And you're like, I just wish he had a blueberry stain on the front of those teeth just one time, or a little coffee stain, something. That's kind of what malice is. Or it could be worse, man. I, I really don't like the person, and I hope something bad happens to him. That has to go away. And then he talks about deceit. This is all lying. Too often people fall into the habit of saying, it was just a little white lie. A little white lie is lying. Big lie, little white lie, Christians are not to lie. We take whatever ramifications come our way and just tell the truth. So he's saying, don't lie to your brothers and sisters. Then he lists hypocrisy. This is where we say we believe in this and we live another way. And to some degree, we all suffer from hypocrisy even on a particular day or a particular hour. But this should be something where we are growing in our faith and we are constantly going towards the point of where we say, this is what I believe and this is what I do. Our ultimate goal would be live 24-7, 365 days, living exactly what we say we believe in. And then there's envy. That's where you see something or someone that you're a fellow Christian brother or sister has and you want it. But it's even more deeper than that. It's a resentment that they have it and that you don't have it. And that's got to go. And then lastly, we got to get rid of slander. And that is simply where <clears throat> we say things about somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, that is not true. And it damages their reputation. <clears throat> So he says, if you want to love each other deeply, you got to get rid of these things. And then we know from other scriptures that you replace that with gentleness and kindness and forgiveness and compassion. And then that's how we end up loving our brothers and sisters deeply. Now, this is for, first and foremost, our Christian brothers and sisters within the church. But this is a verse that has big impact within the home. If you're married to a Christian husband or wife, they are also your brother or sister, and you are called to love them. And if you're struggling in your marriage, there's no out. You have to figure it out. Maybe you're a child who is estranged or struggling with your parent. You are called to love that parent. If they're a Christian, you got to work it out. Maybe in the workplace or on your, your team at, at, at school, um, you're struggling with somebody that's a Christian brother or sister. You're still called to love them even if they annoy you. And then he closes this section and he says, like newborn babies, Crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. When a baby's born, man, they want milk, it seems like, all the time. Four o'clock in the morning, and they're crying. 
And he's saying, hey, Christians, crave the Word of God like a newborn baby craves milk. And so the question for each of us, do we get up in the morning and do we look at Facebook and everything else or do we crave God's Word? Do we set aside the first time in our morning to get out our journals and our Bibles and to study and to pray because that's what this is saying. Crave God's Word because that's how we grow in our spiritual maturity. And he ends it that now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted that there is hope that you have. You have been saved from that and you have this to look forward to. And that is sweet beyond anything we can imagine. So I would just ask two questions of you. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you come in here every week and just go, yeah, i got to do that sometime? Don't put that off. You may say, well, hey, I'm not dressed for it today. You could come in here in a tuxedo or an evening gown. We've got everything you need. And you can leave in your tuxedo and your evening gown. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord will baptize you. Your sins are washed away. You receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings about the power to be holy people. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe a cradle Christian, or a longtime Christian. Thinking back to this last week or this last month, Have you been motivated to live holy lives? Would your family or your co-workers say they live a holy life, or would they go, well, I didn't even know they are Christians? As I was preparing for this this week, man, I just felt very convicted about holiness. Do you love your brothers and sisters in here deeply from the heart? because they have the same spiritual genetic makeup that you do. We're going to sing a song of invitation, and I'll be down front here, and maybe you just want to come forward today and talk about giving your life to Christ. Maybe today's the day you go, I'm in. I want that hope. Come on down. If there's more than one of you, Jordan's sitting right here. There's elders in here. We'll all come down. We'll talk with you. Or maybe you're right where you're sitting at. You need to recommit yourself to a holy lifestyle and follow the exhortations of Peter to do something urgently right now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, this is an area where I struggle with. I you know, confess that this week. I want to live a holier life. And I know that my brothers and sisters in here, I'm assuming they probably do the same thing. And I just pray as a corporate body, that we will be known as a church of, that is holy, that we walk away from sin, that we do the right thing, that we have pure thoughts, pure hearts, pure actions, that we're known for a church that is compassionate and kind and loving. 
I would just pray that if there's somebody in here that's just holding out and just will not walk into that aisle, that this morning, Lord, that you'll just prompt them to walk, come down. We know that the angels in heaven will rejoice when they give their life to you. We just thank you for your word that it never, um, ever goes away. We thank you for heaven. Um, just what we have to look forward to. I was reading this week just about Franklin Graham said that you should never preach about hell without tears in your eyes. And Lord, I know that too often we take hell lightly and we should. Help us to see the contrast between what we've been saved from and what we are saved for. We thank you so much for Jesus and for what he did for us on the cross. Forgive us when we fail to see the immensity of his sacrifice for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.